0: Hello, this is William Fink,
1: and this is Christogania Internet Radio. Tonight we will present the prophecy of Nahum in one part, because Nahum is a rather short book. We will get a full program out of it, though. Today is September 19, 2014. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. When the books of the – and let me say it now. Next week we're going to have a um, call-in program, Friday night, open lines. I encourage your participation. And, and of course, the trolls are not – the gate crashers, the perverts, the Jews, the Antifa um, pretending to be CI pastors so that they could destroy CI, Christian identity. They're not invited. They will be completely cut out of the recordings. When the books of the 12 minor prophets in the Bible were placed in order. And this is from the er earliest manuscripts that I've seen, although they vary amongst one another. Nevertheless, an effort was made to place them chronologically. What we have now, in the King James Version and all modern versions of the Bible, it's an effort to order the 12 minor prophets aside from the four major prophets, an effort to place them chronologically. However, for a few of them, namely for Joel, Obadiah, and Jonah, that placement was not very accurate. Jonah was certainly the earliest of the recorded prophets, and should have been placed before Hosea. Jonah was a memory in the days of Jeroboam 1, and we see that in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25. And Hosea began his prophesying. Closer to the end of Jeroboam 1's long tenure as the king of Israel, the first king of divided Israel. Obadiah when Jerusalem was already destroyed and therefore Obadiah should have been placed much later in order perhaps after Zephaniah and before Haggai chapter 3 of Joel shows that the prophet wrote after the Assyrian deportations and before the fall of Jerusalem therefore he should have been placed in order next to Nahum if we can reorder the minor prophets, we should have Jonah, then Hosea, Amos, and Micah, and the three of them were all contemporary with Isaiah, and then Nahum, who we are going to present tonight, and then Joel, who both seem to have been not long before the time of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and then Habakkuk and Zephaniah, who were both in the days of Josiah, the king of Judah. And they were contemporary with Jeremiah and Ezekiel in the early years of their ministries. Then, Obadiah, and then after the time of Daniel, who would be next in chronology, we have the post-captivity prophets Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Here, we shall present the prophecy of Nahum, or Nahum, as some people say it. With some commentary and material from some of the correlating scriptures and from history, not much is known of Nahum himself. The prophet does not date himself except as we shall see, by the conditions expressed in his writing. And he only calls himself Naam the Elkoshite, most likely meaning that he came from a place called Elkosh. There is conjecture that Capernaum, the New Testament town in Galilee, was named for the prophet. The Hebrew word which gives us the name Nahum means comfort. And it is fitting for the message of this prophet, since the destruction of Assyria would certainly be a comfort to Israel, and especially to Judah, which is still partially intact at this time. The phrase from which the name Capernaum, is derived means village of comfort. There are at least four towns named comfort in the United States Texas, North Carolina, Wisconsin, West Virginia. Capernaum, village of Naam, village of comfort, may have easily been named likewise. And therefore, there is not necessarily a connection to the prophet and we won't try to make one. There was also a place called Al-Kash, Naomi the Okoshite, right? There was a place called al in what is now northern Iraq, which allegedly dates to Assyrian times, and that is plausible, and to which there has long, for many centuries, been claimed a connection to prophets. If that is so, and we're not accepting it, even though, and and I didn't put this in my notes, but even though there's there's a place in Al-Kash in northern Iraq which claims to have the tomb of Nahum. And I know from my studies that in the centuries after the Christian era, there were a lot of places in Mesopotamia and the Near East who claimed to have the tomb of this person or that person. There was a place in in the ancient Persian Empire that claimed to have the tombs of Moses and Abraham. And they were doing that for the same reason why the Catholic Church was later claiming to have the relics of the saints. They were doing that to foster a tourism industry. That's why they were doing it. So I wouldn't take it for granted that there's a tomb of Nahum in Al-Kash in northern Iraq, that it's really the tomb of Nahum. However, if it is so that Nahum is from that Al-Kash, because there is no Al-Kash in Palestine known from Old Testament times, that doesn't mean it didn't exist. It just means that it hasn't been identified with any certainty that Nahum would be an Israelite of the Assyrian captivity. However, while this is a possibility, it cannot be taken for granted that it's true. And one may argue, reading Nahum, that the context of the prophecy, especially in the first chapter, places the prophet in Jerusalem. But of course, that too is a more or less circumstantial argument. So I don't think we're ever going to arrive conclusively without further ancient literary evidence where Nahum was from or or, or, um, where he was when he prophesied. So I'm not going to jump to any unsubstantiated conclusions based on circumstantial evidence alone. Now for a discussion and this is most important and and central to this presentation tonight, now for a discussion of the historical background of Nahum's prophecy. Some chronologies place the beginning of the rule of Hezekiah the king of Judah as early as 729 B.C. Hezekiah ruled the kingdom of Judah, as the Bible tells us, for 29 years. Others begin his reign as late as 715 BC, and and that's for good reason that we will discuss later, but they don't have any credibility doing it. 2 Kings, chapter 18, verse 10, states that Samaria was taken in the sixth year of the rule of Hezekiah, and that is generally accepted by anthropologists, historians, archaeologists to have happened in 722 or 721 BC when Sargon the Great put Samaria under siege and took it. So a starting date of 727 BC for the beginning of Hezekiah's rule is a fair estimate counting the years inclusively. 727 is the first year, 726 is the second, and so on. 7.15 is far too late. In 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 13, we read that Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, took 46 fence cities of Judah in the 14th year of Hezekiah, which, counting inclusively from 7.27, would be 7.14 B.C. The Bible records the siege of Jerusalem by Sennacherib, most fully in 2 Kings, chapters 18 and 19, which end with the annihilation of Sennacherib's army by apparently supernatural means. I'm going to read from chapter 18, verse 32. Therefore, thus says Yahweh, concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there nor come before it with shield, nor cast a bank against it by the way that he came. By the same shall he return, and shall not come into this city, saith Yahweh. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake, and for my servant David's sake. And it came to pass that night that the angel of Yahweh went out and smote in the camp of the Assyrians a hundred four score, and five thousand. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went and returned and dwelt at Nineveh. And it came to pass, as he was worshipping in the house of Mizrahi, his god, that Adremelech and Sharazar, his son, smote him with the sword and they escaped into the land of Armenia, and Asarhadan, his son, reigned in his stead. The period before it came to pass, as it says, and it came to pass that this happened to Sennacherib. The period before it came to pass was actually quite a long time. Since, by the popular chronologies, those of the archaeologists and, and anthropologists and historians, Esarhaddon, his son, ascended to the throne around 680 B.C. While the Assyrian records are not clear about the circumstances of the death of Sennacherib, they are supportive of the biblical account. Esarhaddon, his son, left inscriptions explaining that he was the youngest of his brothers and was the appointed successor of his father, which made his brothers jealous. Thereafter, Esarhaddon attained the throne in the aftermath of a civil war against his brothers after his father died. And he said in an inscription that his brothers went out of their senses doing everything that is wicked in the eyes of the gods and mankind, and continued their evil machinations. That's found in an inscription of Sr. Hadan in ancient Near Eastern texts relating to the Old Testament, page 289. When the Assyrians, under Sennacherib, some people pronounce that Sennacherib, had decimated Judah and threatened Jerusalem, Hezekiah became sick unto death, as it is described in 2 Kings chapter 20, and he entered into prayer to Yahweh, the God of Israel. He was at that time visited by the prophet Isaiah, who was nearing the end of his own ministry. Then Isaiah delivered the word of Yahweh to the king, as it is recorded in that same chapter from from verse 5, turn again. And tell Hezekiah, the captain of my people, thus saith Yahweh, the God of David, thy father, I have heard thy prayer, I have seen thy tears, behold, I will heal thee. On the third day thou shalt go up unto the house of Yahweh, and I will add unto thy days fifteen years, and I will deliver thee and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for mine own sake and for David, my servant's sake. From the chronology of scripture, these last 15 years in the life of Hezekiah were apparently from 714 or just after to about 699 B.C. The destruction of the Assyrian army is reported at the end of 2 Kings chapter 19. However, the illness of Hezekiah happened in those days, as 2 Kings chapter 20 attests. And therefore, the promise of 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 6, where it says that Yahweh will defend Judah and Jerusalem, proceeds... The records of 2 Kings chapter 19, verses 35 through 37. This matter confuses all of the so-called scholars who attend to chronology because they all perceive that 15 years to follow the destruction of the Assyrian army rather than to coincide with the siege. So all these so-called scholars attempt to start Hezekiah's rule in 714 rather than in 729 as the Bible says that the fall of Samaria was in the sixth year of Hezekiah. The Bible is not written as a perfectly linear narrative we have the account of the assyrians being destroyed and then in 2 kings chapter 20 it says and in those days referring to the time when jerusalem was under siege and the assyrians were destroyed not after that time during that time that's why it says in those days the bible is not written as a perfectly linear narrative hezekiah's illness must have occurred near the beginning or not long before, the siege of Jerusalem by Sennacherib, as Yahweh promises him, that I will deliver thee and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for mine own sake and for David my servant's sake. Jerusalem must have been under siege from that time when that promise was made and Hezekiah was sick, and on for a good portion of those final 15 years in the life of Hezekiah since the Assyrian siege of Jerusalem lasted for several years. So 2 Kings chapter 20 is parallel to 2 Kings chapters 18 and 19.
0: The annals of Sennacherib had been preserved
1: in several ancient inscriptions, which had been discovered by archaeologists from the time of um, Sir Henry Sir Henry Layard in the 1840s, when Nineveh was first excavated by British archaeologists, two of those um, ancient inscriptions, which contain the annals of Sennacherib are called the Senechera prison and also the Taylor Prison. The king, according to generally accepted chronologies, ruled Assyria from 704 to 681 BC. We don't agree with that. If the generally accepted date, the rule of Sargon II and the fall of Samaria is accepted, then Sennacherib's rule must have started at least 10 years sooner, if the scripture is correct, and of course it is. However, it may be that Sennacherib, being the successor and son of Sargon II, was considered king by the scribes of Judah before he actually took the throne, since he was the crown prince and co-regent with his father, Sargon II. There are a multitude of problems when assessing ancient chronologies. However, the archaeological records certainly attest to the historicity of the events themselves. The following translation from the Annals of Sennacherib concerns the siege of Jerusalem in the days of Hezekiah, the king of Judah. This is from ancient Near Eastern texts relating to the Old Testament, Princeton University Press page 288. The translator is the famous D.D. Lucanville. As to Hezekiah, the Judahite, he did not submit to my yoke. I laid siege to 46 of his strong cities, walled forts, and to the countless small villages in their vicinity, and conquered them by means of well-stamped earth ramps. And battering rams brought thus near to the walls, combined with the attack of, by foot soldiers, using mines, breaches, as well as sapper work, machines in order to breach the walls of the city. I drove, and, and the sapper work would protect the soldiers from missiles above. I drove out of them two hundred thousand and one hundred and fifty people, young and old, male and female, horses, mules, donkeys, camels, big and small, cattle beyond counting, and considered them booty. Himself I made a prisoner in Jerusalem, his royal residence, like a bird in a cage, speaking Sinaturus, speaking of Hezekiah. I surrounded him with earthwork in order to molest those who were leaving his city's gate. His towns, which I had plundered, I took away from his country and gave them over to Metinti, the king of Ashdod, Paddy, the king of Ekron, and Silibel, or Silibal, the king of Gaza. Thus I reduced his country, but I still increased the tribute and the Catru presence, we, we don't know what tattoo means, I guess. Due to me as his overlord, which I imposed later upon him beyond the former tribute to be delivered annually. Hezekiah himself, whom the terror inspiring splendor of my lordship, and, and this shows how pompous the Assyrians are and how proud they are, whom the terror inspiring splendor of my lordship had overwhelmed and whose irregular and elite troops which he had brought into Jerusalem, his royal residence, in order to strengthen it, had deserted him, did send me later to Nineveh, my lordly city, together with thirty talents of gold, eight hundred talents of silver, precious stones, antimony, large cuts of red stone, couches inlaid with ivory. Ninidu, Nimidu chairs, I guess we don't know what Nimidu means, inlaid with ivory, elephant hides, ebony wood, boxwood, and all kinds of valuable treasures. His own daughters, concubines, male and female musicians, in order to deliver the tribute and to do obeisance as a slave, he sent his personal messenger. The biblical account, being accurate, The annals of Sennacherib seem to be an early instance of political spin. There is no doubt that these annals were created as memorials boasting of the conquests of these ancient kings. Therefore, Sennacherib's claim to have left Hezekiah a prisoner like a bird in a cage is only a claim made to save face after the loss of so many thousands of his troops at the hand of Yahweh, the God of Israel, and his subsequent withdrawal of the siege, which he himself admits but paints a pretty face on. The siege was clearly a defeat since it failed in its purpose to take the city and to lead its people captive, recorded in the words of the Assyrian ambassador Rabshakeh in 2 Kings chapter 18. Maybe that should be pronounced Rabshakeh. Ironically, while Sennacherib boasted that he had left Hezekiah like a bird in a cage, the prophet Isaiah had written, before that, Isaiah chapter thirty one verse five, of the very salvation of Jerusalem at that time that as birds flying, so will Yahweh of hosts defend Jerusalem, defending it also he will deliver it and passing over he will preserve it. And Isaiah's words were a prophecy of the very destruction of of Sennacherib's army. We have provided this background and plan to discuss some of these things further, in part because from some of the statements in Nahum's first chapter, it seems that he is alluding to the events of the reign of Hezekiah. But from the third chapter of Nahum, it is evident that he is not writing until after 663 B.C long after Hezekiah was dead. However, since Nineveh fell around 612 B.C., the prophet must be writing before that time, and we will narrow this down further. However, it is safe to place the date of Nahum's prophecy within that 50-year period, after 663 B.C. and before 612. The text of Nahum used here is from the King James Version. While we may cite, and we will cite, some important variations from the Septuagint and other versions. We won't cite them all, but we will cite some of them. Nahum, chapter 1, verse 1. The burden of Nineveh, the book, of the vision of Nahum, the Elkoshite. That's all we know about the man himself. The purpose of Nahum's entire prophecy is to foretell the vengeance which Yahweh will take against the Assyrians for their destruction of Israel and Judah. Nahum is not the only prophet who presaged this. As there are lengthy sections of Isaiah which foretell of the coming destruction of Assyria in the hands of the children of Israel, in concert with some of the other nations that, that Assyria had oppressed, such as the Medes especially. However, this prophecy found in Nahum was written as a relatively short, standalone lyrical poem. The prophets were poets. Nahum wrote a lyrical poem, a lyric poem, for the particular purpose of warning of Assyria's doom. And he probably sung it throughout the land. As we shall see, it seems to be an answer to the vaunting of the Assyrians against the God of Israel. That Assyria was all powerful in the eyes of the ancient world and that Israel and much of Judah had already already been decimated by the Assyrians, makes the prophecy all the more striking. We can imagine those who heard it wondering in disbelief. Therefore, Nahum's prophecy should be a source of inspiration to those of us who understand the role of true Israel in the world today verse 2. God is jealous and Yahweh revenges. Yahweh revenges and is furious. Yahweh will take vengeance on his adversaries and reserve wrath for his enemies. Yahweh is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked And the words, the wicked, are an addition in the King James Version there. Yahweh has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. The references to the adversaries, the enemies, are references to the Assyrians. One place in Isaiah where the purpose of Yahweh, in reference to Assyria, is summarized is in Isaiah chapter 10. And we will read, because it's important and parallels the prophecy of Nahum, we will read it from verse 5. O Assyrian, rod of mine anger, and the staff in their hand is my, meaning God's, indignation. I will send him against the hypocritical nation, and against the people of my wrath will I give him a charge to take the spoil and to take the prey and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. So we see that Assyria is the rod by which Yahweh would punish the children of Israel. The hypocritical nation is Israel. Verse 7. Howbeit he means not so, neither does his heart think so. In other words, the Assyrian is oblivious to the fact that Yahweh, the God of Israel, has raised Assyria up to punish the children of Israel. But it is in his heart to destroy and cut off nations, not a few. For he saith, Are not my kings, my princes, altogether kings? Is not Kalno as Carchemish? Is not Hamad as Arpad? Is not Samaria? As Damascus. In other words, all these cities were destroyed to one extent or another by the Assyrians. As my hand has found the kingdoms of the idols, and whose graven images did excel them of Jerusalem and of Samaria, shall I not, as I have done unto Samaria and her idols, so do to Jerusalem and her idols. And the Assyrian is being portrayed as far too proud of himself for the task which was actually assigned him by God. Wherefore it shall come to pass that when the Lord has performed his whole work upon Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, I will punish the fruit of the stout heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his high looks. For he says, by the strength of my hand I have done it, And by my wisdom, for I am prudent, and I have removed the bounds of the people, and have robbed their treasures, and I have put down the inhabitants like a valiant man. And my hand is found as a nest the riches of the people, and as one gathereth eggs to the left, I have gathered all the earth, and there was none that moved the wing, or opened the mouth, or peeped. Nobody could raise a hand against the Assyrians." A lesson to those of us who are successful in our endeavors is that we should always be humble in our success and give the credit for it to God. Verse 15. Shall the axe boast itself against him that hews therewith? Or shall the saw magnify itself against him that shakes it? as if the rod should shake itself against them that lifted up, or as if the staff should lift up itself as if it were not wood. The Assyrian was only a tool in the hand of God, and therefore should not have vaunted himself against that God. Therefore shall the Lord, the Lord of hosts, send among his fat ones leanness, and under his glory he shall kindle a burning, like the burning of a fire. And the light of Israel shall be for a fire and his holy one for a flame. And it shall burn and devour his thorns and his briars in one day. And this is a strong indication that the children of Israel would participate in the destruction of Nineveh. And there are others later in this chapter, Isaiah chapter 10 and shall consume the glory of his forest and of his fruitful field, both soul and body. And they shall be as when a standard-bearer faints, and the rest of the trees of his forest shall be few. When the standard in battle, when it goes down, the troops flee. They, They felt they were defeated. And the rest of the trees of his forest shall be few that a child may write them. Little would be left of the Assyrians when it was over, and that certainly became true. Nahum, verse 4, He, meaning Yahweh, rebukes the sea and makes it dry, and dries up all the rivers. Bashan languishes, and Carmel, and the flower of Lebanon, languishes. And these places in Israel, it seems that the word of God is using these once glorious places in Israel as a proverb at this time. Isaiah had already mentioned these same places on several occasions. And in chapter 33 of his prophecy, he wrote a similar oracle naming these same places in connection with the vengeance of Yahweh, where he says it. 33.9. 33, nine. The earth mourns and languishes. Lebanon is ashamed and hewn down. Sharon is like a wilderness. And Bashan and Carmel shake off their fruits. Now will I rise, says Yahweh. Now will I be exalted. Now will I lift myself up. Nahum verse 5. The mountains quake at him. And the hills melt and the earth is burned at his presence. yea the world and all that dwell therein. And mountains and hills are, of course, analogies for nations large and small. Who can stand before his indignation and who can abide in the fairness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire and the rocks are thrown down by him. Yahweh is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble, he knows them that trust in him. But with an overrunning flood, he will make an utter end of the place thereof, and darkness shall pursue his enemies. Yahweh God knows those who trust in him, but to trust in a God, or in the God, is to keep his ways. Therefore, Nahum is referring to the children of Israel who are obedient to their God, indicating that they would be looked after by him. He is a stronghold in a day of trouble, and therefore keeping his ways, one may abide his anger. On the other hand, destruction is certain to those of his enemies. Verse 9, what do you, and he's addressing the Assyrians, what do you imagine against Yahweh? He will make an utter end. Affliction shall not rise up the second time. And that's important to the context of this epistle of Nahum. For while they be folded together as thorns, and while they are drunken as drunkards, they shall be devoured as stubble fully dry. There is one come out of thee that imagines evil against Yahweh, a wicked man. Counselor.
0: At verse 11,
1: the Septuagint has the future tense of the verb. One out of thee shall proceed, a device against Yahweh, counseling evil things hostile to him. In 2 Kings chapters 18 and 19, There is the account of the Assyrian officer who blasphemed Yahweh, the God of Israel, which is representative of Assyrian pride and insolence that is illustrated here in Nahum. And we're going to read it from 2 Kings chapter 18 from verse 17. And the king of Assyria sent Tartan and Rab saris and Rab shaka Now these or Rab Shakkah, these names aren't really names. They're actually titles of office holders and ambassadors in the Assyrian Empire. From Lakeish to King Hezekiah with the great host against Jerusalem, when we presented our um, prophecy of. Amos here last year, we demonstrated from ancient inscriptions that when Sennacherib had invaded Judah and took 46 strong cities of the um, towns of Judah and took those 200,000 people, some odd people, captive to Assyria, he had used the ancient Israelite city of Lachish as his base of operations and left that city intact later on. Therefore, we see from um, inscriptions that we illustrated called the Kish Ostraca, that Kish was a, um, was still an outpost in Judah, right up to the time of Nebuchadnezzar. And they went up And came to Jerusalem, Tartan, Rapsaris, and Rabshaka. And when they were come up, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is in the highway of the fuller's field. And when they had called to the king, there came out to them Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the whole household, and Shedonah, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, And Rabshakeh said unto them, Speak ye now to Hezekiah. Thus saith the great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence is this wherein thou trusts? Thou sayest, but they are but vain words. I have counsel and strength for the war. Now on whom do you trust that you rebelled against me? Hezekiah had rebelled against Sennacherib, refusing to further be obedient to him or provide him with tribute, which includes soldiers for his ongoing military campaigns. Now behold, you trust upon the staff of this bruised reed, even upon Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, unto all that trust on him. But if you say unto me, we trust in Yahweh our God, is not that he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away. Now this is important because this shows that Hezekiah took the high places in Judah and Jerusalem away prior to the siege of Assyria by Sennacherib. But the king of Assyria and the Assyrians imagined, not that Hezekiah had taken the high places of the idols away, they imagined that he took high places of Yahweh away, which the Bible tells us, of course, is not true. He took the high places of the idols away. We trust in Yahweh our God, if you say unto me, Rabshakeh, we trust in Yahweh our God. Rabshakeh says, is not that he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and has said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem. Now therefore I pray thee, give pledges to my lord the king of Assyria and I will deliver thee 2,000 horses if you be able on your part to set riders upon them. The Assyrians are doubting that Hezekiah can assemble an army. How then wilt thou turn away the face of one captain of the least of my master's servants and put thy trust on Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Am I now come up without Yahweh against this place to destroy it? Yahweh said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Then said Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and Shebna, and Joah, unto Rabshakeh, Speak, I pray thee, to thy servants in the Syrian language, for we understand it. In other words, in Aramaic. And talk not with us, in the language of Judah, in the ears of the people that are on the wall. But Rabshakeh said unto them, in other words, the, the officials of Judah did not want the common people to hear and understand the Assyrian ambassadors. But Rabshakeh said unto them, Has my master sent me to thy master and to thee to speak these words? Has he not sent me to the men which sit on the wall, that they may eat their own dung and drink their own piss with you? Then Rabshakeh stood and cried with a loud voice, in the language of Judah, and spoke, saying, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus saith the king, Let not Hezekiah deceive you, for he shall not be able to deliver you out of his hand. Now, if the illness and repentance of Hezekiah happened before this time, as I am certain that it did, because 2 Kings chapter 20 Those events are parallel to these events in 2 Kings 18 and 19. Then Yahweh already guaranteed Hezekiah that he would preserve Jerusalem. So Hezekiah wasn't really entrusting on Egypt. He had already repented and was trusting on Yahweh. The king of Assyria perceived Hezekiah was trusting on Egypt. Neither let Hezekiah make you trust in Yahweh, saying, Yahweh will surely deliver us, and this city shall not be delivered into the hand of the king of Assyria. Hearken not to Hezekiah. Now this is Rabshakeh, the Assyrian ambassador, addressing the people of Judah who were on the wall of Jerusalem to defend it. Hearken not to Hezekiah, but us saith, the king of Assyria, make an agreement with me by a present, and come out to me, and then eat ye every man of his own vine, and every one of his fig tree, and drink ye every one the waters of his sister." Until I come and take you away to a land like your own, a land of corn and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive oil and of honey, that you may live and not die and hearken not unto Hezekiah, when he persuaded you, saying, Yahweh will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered at all his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and of Arpad? Where are the gods of Sephorvain, Hena, and Iva? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who are they among all the gods of the countries that had delivered their country out of my hand? That Yahweh should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? So he's vaunting himself against God. But the people held their peace and answered him not a word, for the king's commandment was saying, Answer him not. Then came Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, which was over the household, and Shebna the scribe, and Joah the son of Asaph the recorder to Hezekiah, with the clothes rent, and told him the words of Rabshakeh. Now the response of Hezekiah to this blasphemy of the Assyrians was humble. He did not care for his own reproach. He cared that the Assyrians reproached his God. And rather than respond with his own words, he appealed to his God. This helps to clarify the account of 2 Kings chapter 20, that Hezekiah's illness and his repentance coincided with the events of Sennacherib's siege of Jerusalem rather than following it, and that would also repair all of the mistaken chronologies of the mainstream academics who have not made this realization. From 2 Kings chapter 19... And it came to pass, when King Hezekiah heard it, that he rent his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of Yahweh. And he sent to Uliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna the scribe, and the elders of the priests covered with sackcloth, to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos. And they said to him, Thus saith Hezekiah, This day is a day of trouble and of rebuke, and blasphemy, for the children are come to the birth, and there is not strength to bring forth. It may be, Yahweh thy God will hear all the words of Rabshakeh, whom the king of Assyria, his master, has sent to reproach the living God, and will reprove the words which Yahweh thy God has heard. Wherefore, lift up thy prayer for the remnant that are left, So the servants of the king of Hezekiah came to Isaiah, and Isaiah said unto them, Thus shall ye say to your master, meaning the king, Thus saith Yahweh, Be not afraid of the words which thou hast heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria had blasphemed me. Behold, I will send a blast upon him, and he shall hear a rumor, and shall return to his own land and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. While this event with Rabshakeh and Hezekiah is from a somewhat earlier time than Nahum's, it represents, nevertheless, the pride of Assyria for which the Assyrians would be destroyed. It also seems to be the first affliction which Nahum infers in verse 9, which is also referred to here in verse 12. Thus saith Yahweh, though they be quiet, and likewise many, yet thus shall they be cut, off, cut down when he shall pass through. Though thy, Though I have afflicted thee, meaning the first time when Jerusalem was under siege and when the 46 cities of Judah were taken away, I will afflict thee no more. For now will I break his yoke from off thee, and it will burst thy bonds in sunder. Verse 12 seems to be a reference. It seems to be a reference to the destruction of the Assyrian army before the gates of Jerusalem. But that interpretation conflicts with what is evident concerning the dating of Nahum in chapter 3 of his prophecy, which we will discuss shortly. And the Septuagint reads very differently in verse 12, where Brenton's translation of the Greek is, Thus saith Yahweh, who rules over many waters, even thus shall they be sent away and a report of thee shall not be heard anymore. And now I will break off his yoke from you and snap the bonds that bind you. Although the Assyrian siege under Sennacherib was broken with the destruction of his army, Assyria remained a great power and still had Hezekiah and Judah under tribute so the bonds were not broken at that time. The Assyrian records attest to that, as does scripture. Esharhaddon, the successor of Sennacherib and his son, was still active in Judah and Samaria, and that's even attested to in Ezra chapter 4. Judah was heavily afflicted by the Assyrians and Jerusalem, was besieged in the days of Sennacherib but that was at least 40 years before
0: Nahum prophesied.
1: In Nahum chapter 3, we shall see a reference to No. No was another name for the city of Amano in Egypt, which is called Thebes. Thebes is No. In chapter 3, of Nahum, the prophet indicates that he is not writing until after 663 BC because he references the destruction of Noel, which happened in that year. But here Nahum says that the affliction shall not rise up the second time. And he says, there is one come out of thee that imagines evil against Yahweh, as if there is a second threat to Jerusalem by the Assyrians. The Assyrian king, Ashurbanipal, the son of Esarhaddon, the grandson of Sennacherib, ruled for 50 years, from approximately 55 years, from approximately 668 B.C. to 633 B.C., In the annals of Ashurbanipal, he listed the nations and kings from whom he drew tribute and forces for his campaigns, for his several campaigns against the Egyptians. And among them are listed Baal, king of Tyre, and Manasseh, king of Judah. Manasseh was two kings after Hezekiah. Hezekiah was his grandfather. After the campaign in Egypt and the destruction of Thebes, the Tyrians are recorded in the annals of Ashurbanipal as having revolted against Assyria. The king states in his annals, in my third campaign, I marched against Baal, king of Tyre, who lives on an island amidst the sea because he did not heed my royal order and did not listen to my personal commands. I surrounded him with readouts, seized his roads on sea and land, the seaways and the roads that, 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 that um, led to the ports. I thus intercepted, and made scarce their food supply, and forced them to submit to my yoke. Shortly thereafter, there was a large insurrection against—I'm sorry—amongst the Nabataeans and the other tribes of Arabia, which Ashurbanipal had campaigned to subject. After that campaign, he returned to Tyre. This time. To the mainland city, which the Assyrians called Ushu. The Hebrew Bible calls both parts of the city, the island and the mainland. It calls them both Tyre. The Assyrians called the mainland city Ushu. And Ashurbanipal records that on my return march, I conquered the town of Ushu, the emplacement of which is on the seacoast. I killed those inhabitants of Ushu who did not obey their governors by refusing to deliver the tribute which they had to pay annually. I took to task those among them who were not submissive, their images, and the surviving people I led as booty to Assyria. I killed also those inhabitants of Akko who were not submissive, hanging their corpses on poles, which I placed around the city. The others I took to Assyria formed a contingent out of them and added it to the large army which Asher has presented to me. And it can be established that the inhabitants of Ushu, or Tyre, for the most part, and the inhabitants of Echo, for the most part, at this time were Israelites, some deportations of Israel were still going on in the days of Ashurbanipal. Manasseh was king in Judah for 55 years following the death of Hezekiah, his father, or from about 699, I'm sorry, he's his son, not his grandson, from about 699 to 645 B.C. It is hard to imagine that the wicked king, Manasseh, did not revolt from Assyria at this time, and especially since there were revolts against Assyria in many of those surrounding nations, but neither did he help the Assyrians, evidently. The annals of Ashurbanipal also mention assistance from the kings of Edom and Moab, but there is no mention of Judah. Of course, the Annals themselves are not preserved completely. However, Scripture does record such a thing and presents it from an entirely different viewpoint. From, the, from 2 Chronicles, chapter 33, from verse 9. So Manasseh made Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to err and to do worse than the heathen, whom Yahweh had destroyed before the children of Israel, the children of Manasseh made the children of Judah to do worse than the nations of Canaan, So we could imagine how much like Sodom and Gomorrah, Jerusalem was under the time of Manasseh. And Yahweh spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they would not hearken. Therefore Yahweh brought upon them the captains of the host of the king of Assyria, which took Manasseh among the thorns. Now, the Septuagint has in bonds there, not among the thorns. And other translations of the Hebrew have with hooks or in manacles. So I wouldn't take the thorns thing in the King James Version too literally and bound him with fetters and carried him to Babylon and when he was in affliction he besought Yahweh his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers and prayed unto him and he was entreated of him and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. The Assyrians took Manasseh out of Jerusalem into captivity. Manasseh prayed to Yahweh, God, for deliverance, and Yahweh granted it to him, even though Manasseh was a very wicked king. Then Manasseh knew that Yahweh was God. Now, after this, he built a wall without the city of David. That means outside the city of David. He fortified it. The city of David is a portion of Jerusalem. On the west side of Gihon, in the valley, even to the entering in at the fish gate, encompassed about Ophel and raised it up a very great height and put captains of war in all the fenced cities of Judah. Now this right here indicates that Manasseh was prepared to rebel against the Assyrians and raised it up a very great height, and put captains of war in all the fenced cities of Judah. And he took away the strange gods, and the idols out of the house of Yahweh, and all the altars that he had built in the mouth of the house of Yahweh, and in Jerusalem, and cast them out of the city. And he repaired the altar of Yahweh, and sacrificed thereon peace offerings and thank offerings, and commanded Judah to serve Yahweh the God of Israel. Nevertheless, the people did sacrifice still in high places, yet unto Yahweh their God only. So they were sacrificing in these old idols' groves, and they were sacrificing to Yahweh. They were using the idol groves to worship God that isn't necessarily good in the eyes of God. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and his prayer unto his God and the words of the seers that spoke to him in the name of Yahweh, God of Israel, behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel. And his prayer also, and how God was entreated of him and all his sin and his trespass in the places wherein he built high places and set up groves, graven images, before he was humbled. Behold, they are written among the sayings of the seers. So Manasseh slept with his fathers, and they buried him in his own house, and Ammon, his son, reigned in his stead. Ammon only reigned two years before the rule of jo- Josiah. It seems that this passage of Nahum must therefore be connected somehow to these events in the time of Manasseh. After Manasseh, his wicked son Ammon ruled Judah for two years, and then there was the 30-year rule of the good king Josiah. It was during the time of Josiah that Assyria was destroyed. However, the end of Josiah's rule may actually have involved that same event. On the surface, it appears that the dating for the death of Josiah in the the popular chronologies may be as late as 609 B.C. However, if the years are counted inclusively and the anchor date for Hezekiah's 14th year of the fall of Samaria of 721 or 722 B.C. is correct, then Josiah may easily had died as early as 613 or 612 B.C., not counting the reigns of the kings end to end, but as often happened in the ancient world. If I die this year and my son succeeds me this year, then this would be considered the last year of my rule, the first year of my son's, so 20... 14 would be the first year of his rule, even though it's not a complete year. And that's usually the way they count things in the Scriptures, even in the New Testament. So Josiah could easily have died as early as 613 or 612 B.C., which is the generally accepted date for the fall of Nineveh. The Scripture says of the death of Josiah, from 2 Kings chapter 23... In his days, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went up against the king of Assyria to the river Euphrates. And King Josiah went against him, meaning against the Pharaoh. And he slew him at Megiddo when he had seen him. The Pharaoh, the Egyptian forces, killed Josiah. And his servants carried him in a chariot dead from Megiddo, and brought him to Jerusalem, and buried him in his own sepulcher. And the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and anointed him, and made him king in his father's place. The Egyptian pharaoh may very well have been sending armies to Assyria, to the Euphrates, to assist in its destruction, which was happening at that very time. At this time, 612 B.C., the pharaoh was attempting to gain from the fall of Assyria all the land of the Levant, as far as the city of Carchemish. Carchemish was the ancient Hittite capital. Pharaoh Necho was defeated at Carchemish by Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon, in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, as Jeremiah 46.2 attests. Some of this is recorded by the Greek historian Herodotus in his histories, Book 2, Chapter 159. In Herodotus, though, a lot of casual readers would just overlook it, because in Herodotus, the Judeans, the Judahites under Josiah, are called Syrians, and Megiddo is called Magdalas. Herodotus referred to the Judahites as the Syrians of Palestine several times in his histories. Nahum 114, And Yahweh has given a commandment concerning thee, that no more of thy name be sown out of the house of thy gods, I will cut off the graven image and the molten image. This is speaking of Nineveh. I will make thy grave, for thou art vile. Behold, upon the mountains, the seed of him that brings good tidings, that publishes peace. O Judah, keep thy solemn feasts. Perform thy vows, for the wicked shall no more pass through thee. He is utterly cut off. Nahum wrote, at least 40 years after the ministry of Isaiah saw its end, and we will establish Nahum chapter 3, and must have been familiar with his prophecy. Verse 15, Isaiah 52 7, which Paul also quotes in Romans chapter 10, how beautiful the feet of them that bring the gospel. And here Nahum connects the coming destruction of Assyria to the deliverance and obedience of Judah. After Manasseh was delivered from the hand of the Assyrians, there was a partial reform and a more full reform, religious reform in Judah, return to Yahweh in Judah, came. who shall no more pass through thee, is not a reference to sinful people. Although it may be prophetic of that, if Judah had indeed repented and continued in the ways of Yahweh their God, it may be prophetic now as a dual prophecy for our future. But in the immediate context of Nahum, here in this chapter, it must be a reference to the Assyrians themselves who the opening of this prophecy explicitly were called adversaries and enemies of Yahweh. So what we have in Nahum chapter 1, in a nutshell, is we we have talk of a second affliction. Though I have afflicted thee, I will afflict thee no more. Affliction shall not rise up. The second time, the first affliction happened under Sennacherib. The second affliction must have happened under Manasseh and was promised by Nahum that it would not be completed. Therefore, Manasseh fortified his cities, dug himself in to defend them, to defend Jerusalem once again, But the attack from the Assyrians never came. Yahweh said that he would not afflict them
0: a second time. Nahum chapter 2,
1: verse 1. He that dashes in pieces has come up before thy face. Keep the munition, watch the way. Make thy wine strong, fortify thy power mightily. For Yahweh has turned away the excellency of Jacob as the excellency of Israel. For the emptiers had emptied them out, meaning Jacob and Israel, and marred their vine branches, the emptiers of the Assyrians. And this is a reference to the earlier deportations of Israel. He that dashes in pieces is come up before thy face, because the Assyrians had once again come to Jerusalem, apparently, when Manasseh was taken captive. The shield of his mighty men is made red. The valiant men are in scarlet. Now, Nahum is prophesying the destruction of Assyria for what they have done to Israel and Judah, and for their pride in doing it. So these seem to be references to the blood of the Assyrians, which would be shed in retribution. The chariots shall be with flaming torches in the day of his preparation, and the fir trees, or the nations, shall be terribly shaken. The chariots shall rage in the streets. They shall jostle one against another in the broad ways. They shall seem like torches. They shall run like the lightnings. He shall recount his worthies. They shall stumble in their walk. They shall make haste to the wall thereof, and the defense shall be prepared. The gates of the rivers shall be opened, and the palace shall be dissolved. The ruins of ancient Nineveh, this is the burden of Nineveh, the ruins of ancient Nineveh are found in two large mounds. And today they're named Koyuna, I'm sorry, Koyunjik and Nabi Yunus, which are located on a level part of the plain near the junction of the Tigris and the Khasar rivers. Khasar, K H A W S A R, would allow you to find that on Google. The area covers about 1,900 acres. It was surrounded, before Nineveh fell, by a a seven-and-a-half-mile-long brick wall. Nineveh was an important junction for commercial routes crossing the Tigris River. The following is from the Encyclopedia Britannica article on Nineveh, which can be found online. From the ruins, it has been established that the perimeter of the great Assyrian city wall was about seven and a half miles long and in places up to 148 feet wide. The walls of ancient cities were um, were built so that chariots and armies had 148 feet Chariots and and, and soldiers in their armies could actually stand on the walls to defend the city from invaders below the walls. Chariots could ride around the city walls,
0: atop of the walls.
1: Nineveh was an important Junction for commercial routes crossing the Tigris. I'm sorry, I read that. The walls were seven and a half miles long and 148 feet wide, and the article goes on to state, there was also a great unfinished outer rampart protected by a moat, and the Casa River flowed through the center of the city to join the Tigris River on the western side of it. Now with this description, Nahum, chapter 2, verse 6, may be better understood. The gates of the rivers shall be opened, and the palace shall be dissolved. In other words, the walls would be breached where the rivers were, and and that would ultimately lead to the destruction of the city. Verse 7, and Huzab shall be led away captive. She shall be brought up and her maid shall lead her as with the voice of doves, tabering, tabering is a word describing a musical sort of beating, tabering upon their breasts. The reference to Huzab seems to come from a misunderstanding on the part of the King James Version translators, and the only a few modern translations follow it. Brenton Septuagint follows the Greek rather well, where he has this verse to read, and the foundation has been exposed. There's no reference to Huzab in the Septuagint. It says, and the foundation has been exposed, and she, referring to the city, she has gone up, and her maidservants were led away as doves, moaning in their hearts. Now, rather than Huzab, the New American Standard Bible reads, it is fixed, which is closer to the understanding of the Hebrew word reflected in the Septuagint. And she and her, later in the passage, seem to refer not to some Huzab, but to the city itself. Verse 8, but Nineveh is of old, like a pool of water, yet they shall flee away. Stand, stand, shall they cry, but none shall look back from Brenton's Septuagint, and a repetition is found in the Greek also, it says, And as for Nineveh, her waters shall be as a pool of water. And they fled and stayed not, and there was none to look back. And the meaning seems to be that the people of Nineveh shall disappear as a pool of water is breached and cannot stay in its place. Take ye the spoil of silver, take the spoil of gold, for there is none end of the store and glory out of all the pleasant furniture. She is empty and void and waste, and the heart melts, and the knees smite together, and much pain is in all loins, and the faces of them all gather blackness. Where is the dwelling of the lions, and the feeding place of the young lions? Where the lions? Even the old lion walked and a lion's whelp, and none made them afraid. Nineveh was one of the greatest cities, yet from the time of its destruction around 612 B.C., until it was first excavated by the British in the 1840s, it laid in ruins under a pile of rubble. Today, it is still only piles of rubble. However, it's finally being encroached upon by the suburbs of a relatively new Iraqi city named Mosul. Verse 12. The lion did tear in pieces enough for his whelps, and strangled for his lionesses, and filled his holes with prey, and his dens with raven. Behold, I am against thee, saith Yahweh of hosts, and I will burn her chariots in the smoke. And the sword shall devour thy young lions. And I will cut off thy prey from the earth. And the voice of thy messengers shall no more be heard. Again, we're going to read from later on in Isaiah chapter 10, where the destruction of Assyria was also prophesied. And this is from verse 24. Therefore, thus saith Yahweh God of hosts, oh, my people that dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrian. He shall smite thee with a rod and shall lift up his hand against thee. Now, of course, Isaiah wrote this before the Assyrian deportations began in Israel after the manner of Egypt. In other words, they'll go back into captivity. For yet a very little while, and the indignation shall cease, and mine anger in their destruction. And Yahweh of hosts shall stir up a scourge for him according to the slaughter of Midian and the rock of Oreb. And as his rod was upon the sea, so shall he lift it up after the manner of Egypt. And it shall come to pass in that day that his burden shall be taken away from off thy shoulder and his yoke from off thy neck. In other words, Israel would be freed of captivity and, and the tribute and the slavery imposed on them by the Assyrians. And his yoke from off thy neck, and the yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing. This certainly indicates that the children of Israel would also play a significant role in the destruction of Assyria. With that, we will commence Nahum chapter 3. Woe to the bloody city! It is full of lies and robbery. The prey departs not. And of course, Nahum continues to refer to Nineveh. The noise of a whip and the noise of the rattling of the wheels and of the prancing horses and of the jumping chariots. The horseman lifts up both the bright sword and the glittering spear and there is a multitude of slain and a great number of carcasses and there is none end of their corpses. They stumble upon their corpses. And around the time of Nahum, the famous Greek lyric poets and the epic poets of classical Greece began to flourish at this same time. The works of Homer can be dated to about 610 B.C. We're dating Nahum to between 660 and 630 B.C., roughly. The poetic language of Nahum and also Isaiah seem to foreshadow the great greek poets and they are every bit as polished verse 4 because of the multitude of the whoredoms of the well-favored harlot the mistress of witchcrafts that selleth nations to her whoredoms and families to her witchcrafts. Behold, I am against thee, saith Yahweh of hosts, and I will discover thy skirts upon thy face, and I will show the nations thy nakedness, and the kingdoms thy shame. The Hebrew word for well-favored does not indicate favor which comes from God. Rather, in order to make a comparison, Nahum insinuates that Nineveh, is, allegorically, an attractive whore. Verse 6, And I will cast abominable filth upon thee, and make thee vile, and will set thee as a gazing stock or a spectacle. And it shall come to pass that all they that look upon thee shall flee from thee, and say, Nineveh is laid waste. Who will bemoan her? Whence shall I seek comforters for her? The two great mounds where the ruins of Nineveh are found today continue to attest to the perfection of the word of Yahweh. Even if a contentious individual would insist that Nahum wrote after the fact, after Nineveh was destroyed, Nineveh was never rebuilt, and everything that Nahum said of the once great Assyrians remains true, To this day, therefore the word of Yahweh is true, and its providence is sure. There are no comforters for Nineveh. Nobody's bemoaning Nineveh. Nobody bemoaned Nineveh in history. The Greeks remember the Assyrians. They spoke Assyrian, but they certainly didn't speak finally about them. They didn't know much of their history, and they did not bemoan them. Nobody mourned the fall of Nineveh. Art thou better than populace? No. That was situate among the rivers, that had the waters round about it, whose rampart was the sea, and her wall was from the sea. The reference to No here is a reference to a city in Egypt called Amano, which was also known as Thebes, which is known to the Greeks as Thebes. The destruction of Thebes was recorded on the so-called Rosam cylinder, a cylinder and a, and a cylinder containing an inscription found in 1849.
0: by Sir Henry
1: Layard in the ruins of ancient Nineveh when he was excavating one of those mounds. The cylinder is an inscription of Ashurbanipal, who ruled Assyria from about 668 to 633 BC. The inscription says in part, In my second campaign, I marched directly against Egypt. Now, Egypt to the Assyrians is Musur, which is very, very close to the Hebrew word, Mitzrayim. I marched directly against Egypt and Nubia. Er, Erdemane, Erdemane, that's a name, heard of of the approach of my expedition only when I had already set foot on Egyptian territory. He left Memphis, or is evidently a title for the Egyptian pharaoh at the time. He left Memphis and fled into Thebes to save his life. The kings, governors, and regents whom I had installed in Egypt came to meet me and kissed my feet. I followed Erdemane and went as far as Thebes, his fortress. He saw my mighty battle array approaching, left Thebes, and fled to Kipiti. Upon a trust-inspiring oracle of Asher and Ishtar, I myself conquered this town completely. From Thebes, and another version of the inscription says, from Thebes, the capital of Egypt, I carried away booty, heavy and beyond counting, silver, gold, precious stones, his entire personal possessions, linen garments with multicolored trimmings, fine horses, certain inhabitants, male and female. I pulled two high obelisks, cast of shining the Zahalu bronze, and evidently this Zahalu bronze is a, um, an alloy meant to make the, the, the copper very bright, the weight of which was 2,500 talents. Now, a talent was near 60 pounds, so these are pretty big obelisks. Standing at the door of the temple, out of their bases, and took them to Assyria. Thus I carried off from Thebes heavy booty. Beyond counting, I made Egypt and Nubia feel my weapons bitterly and celebrated my triumph with hands full and safely. I returned to Nineveh, the city where I exercised my rule. Now, I haven't compared the dates, but in this same century, Egypt was overrun by Nubians who ruled it for 75 years, right around this same time. So perhaps that is the reason for the connections with Egypt and Nubia here. I can't say that with certainty. So we have the destruction of No recorded in the annals of Ashurbanipal, which happened early in his reign, approximately 663 B.C., five years after he began his reign, and that's during the reign of Manasseh. And here Nahum refers to, it, to that destruction of seed, or No, as if it has already happened, that the, um, the, the great rivers and, and the walls and the population of No wasn't any help and could not save it and that Nineveh was no better. Nahum goes on to say in verse 9, after talking about the ramparts and walls and the protection which Noah had from the sea, and he says, Ethiopia and Egypt were her strength, referring to Noah, and it was infinite. Put and Lubim were, and the King James has, thy helpers. The reference is to no in verse 8, and therefore in verse 9, and not to Nineveh, and it's Nineveh which is being addressed. Therefore, the rendering of the last clause, as it is found in the New American Standard Bible, is more accurate, and it says, put and Lubim were among her helpers, meaning no's helpers, not Nineveh's helpers. Thebes stood against Assyria with the help of these surrounding nations, Ethiopia, Egypt, Put, and Lubin. Yet it was nevertheless destroyed by the Assyrians, and the prophet is using its example as a warning to the Assyrians themselves. Now, Ethiopia says in Hebrew, Cush, and Egypt, which is Mitzrayim, and foot, P-H-U-T, or put here, P-U-T, into King James. Those were all descendants of Ham, listed in Genesis 10.6. Now, it is possible that the Lubin, who are also mentioned in 2 Chronicles, chapters 12 and 16 and who are certainly the Libyans of history and that's the name by which the Greeks also knew them it is possible that they should be associated with either the Ludim or the Lehabim of Genesis 10:13 and i would go so far as to estimate that Ludim in Genesis 10:13 is an error an ancient error for the word Lubim. however none of these people were originally Nubians. The historical Nubians were certainly Negroes. These nations did all intermingle with the Nubians at an early time. Verse 10. Yet, still referring to no, yet she was carried away. She went into captivity. Her young children were also dashed in pieces at the top of all the streets, and they cast lots for her honorable men, and all her great men were bound in chains. So here Nahum continues to refer to No or to Thebes in Egypt, as a warning to Assyria. As the Assyrians were able to destroy Thebes, Nineveh would also be destroyed. Nineveh was indeed destroyed in like manner about 50 years after the Assyrians destroyed Thebes. From Assyrian inscriptions, the destruction of Thebes is believed to have happened around 663 BC. Therefore, with certainty, Nahum's prophecy was made sometime after 663 BC and before 612 BC when Nineveh was finally destroyed. It's our connection of verses 9 through 13 in chapter 1 to the time of Manasseh is correct, and we believe it is. The Nahum prophesied not long after Thebes was destroyed and probably before 644 B.C., while Manasseh was still king. After the death of Ashurbanipal, in 633 B.C., although some sources date his death to as late as 627 B.C., Assyria was in decline due to internal strife caused by struggles and by civil wars over the succession. Since Nahum's prophecy depicts Assyria at the height of its power and because it's very evident from Assyrian inscriptions, that Assyrian kings after Ashurbanipal never did get a grip on the empire or even on all of Assyria. It is unlikely that Nahum prophesied after the death of Ashurbanipal at such a late time. Therefore, we may confidently date the prophet to the thirty year period between the fall of Thebes and the death of Ashurbanipal. The revival, which would be between six sixty three and six thirty three BC. Now we could go further and date the prophet between in the twenty year period, and this is where I would date him confidently from six sixty three BC in the fall of to 644 BC and the end of the reign of Manasseh, but we could confidently date it to between 666, 666, 663, I'm sorry, and 633, the date of the death of Ashurbanipal. The revival in Judah, which seems to be announced in Nahum 115, may refer to the partial repentance of Manasseh, described in 2 Chronicles 3313 16 which I believe it does, or to the much fuller revival under Josiah a few short years later, but still well within the 30-year period. However, I would be confident to date Nahum within the 20-year period, 663 and the fall of Noah, so it happened after that time and before the death of Manasseh in 644. Verse 11. Thou also shall be drunken, thou shalt be hid. Thou also shall seek strength because of the enemy. Rendering the final phrase, because of an enemy, would have been much better in consideration of both context and grammar, because for that word enemy, there's no definite article in the Hebrew. The Septuagint Greek also has only because of enemies, where Brenton, in his translation, added a pronoun in italics, marking it as added, and wrote because of thine enemies. So the King James sort of missed the context boat on that, as well as on the pronoun in verse 9. Verse 11. I'm sorry, verse 12. All thy strongholds shall be like fig trees with the first ripe figs. If they shall be shaken, they shall even fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, thy people in the midst of thee are women. The gates of thy land shall be set wide open unto thine enemies. Sounds like America today. The fire shall devour thy bars. Draw thee waters for the siege. Fortify thy strongholds. Go into clay and tread the mortar to make strong the brick kiln. There shall the fire devour thee. The sword shall cut thee off. It shall eat thee up like the canker worm. Make thyself many as the canker worm. Make thyself many as the locusts. Regardless of the power of Assyria, her great fortresses and armies would fall easily into the hands of her enemies. While the New American Standard Bible agrees with the King James Version's rendering of the Hebrew at verse 15, the Septuagint reads like this. There the fire shall devour thee, the sword shall utterly destroy thee, and it shall destroy thee as the locust, and shalt thou be pressed down as a pommel worm. In Joel chapter 1, the Assyrians and the other nations which had devoured ancient Israel were described in that same manner as the canker worm, the pommel worm, the caterpillar, the locust. As for the men being as women... The Greeks, the ancient Greeks, I forget where I first read it, but it's repeated um, several times. The ancient Greeks had a theory that a wealthy society became um, accustomed to luxury and that that made men effeminate. And that's exactly what we see in the white nations of Europe and America
0: today. Verse
1: 16, Thou hast multiplied thy merchants above the stars of heaven. The cankerworm spoils and flies away. Nahum had said in verses 4 and 5 of this chapter, because of the multitude of the whoredoms of the well-favored harlot, the mistress of witchcraft that sells nations to her whoredoms and families to her witchcrafts, Behold, I am against thee, saith Yahweh of hosts, and I will discover thy skirts upon thy face, and I will show the nations thy nakedness, and the kings thy shame. It's the same pattern that we see in Revelation chapter 18 of the great whore, the international merchants of mystery Babylon. In the prophecies of Hosea and Amos, Yahweh chastised the children of Israel for the whoredom of international trade. Nineveh is portrayed here in that same manner, as is the whore of Babylon in Revelation chapter 18. The stars of heaven often refer to the people of God in Scripture, and here we're told, or we see that, Nineveh is told that she has multiplied her merchants above the stars of heaven. The merchants were multiplied above the children of God. So it is again today. Where it says that the canker worm spoils and flies away, it is evident that once the damage is done, those who caused it would not be found. Nineveh was not taken over. Rather, it was destroyed, and those who destroyed it had left it for good. Verse 17. Thy crown are as the locusts, and thy captains as the great grasshoppers which camp in the hedges in the cold day. But when the sun arises, they flee away, and their place is not known where they are. The references to insects here present a different analogy. The mighty warriors, of Assyria will flee before their enemies like grasshoppers when the time comes that Nineveh falls. Thy shepherds slumber, O king of Assyria, thy nobles shall dwell in the dust. Thy people is scattered upon the mountains, and no man gathers them there is no healing of thy bruise. Thy wound is grievous. All that hear the brute of thee shall clap the hands over thee. For upon whom has not thy wickedness passed continually? While after the fall of Nineveh, there were scatterings of Assyrian people left in diverse places, there were no longer any great Assyrian nations, no longer any great national unity. Their national identity was completely destroyed. A source as flaccid, and yes, I meant to use the adjective flaccid or flaccid, A source as flaccid as Wikipedia says of Nineveh that it was the largest city in the world for some 50 years until, after a bitter period of civil war in Assyria itself, it was sacked. And this is important to note that this is from Wikipedia, it surprised me. It was sacked by an unusual coalition of former subject peoples, the Babylonians. The Medes, the Persians, the Chaldeans, well, the Babylonians at this time really were the Chaldeans. The Scythians and Cimmerians, and those, two, those last two are instrumental to the history of Europe for, until this very day from that time. The Scythians and Cimmerians in 612 B.C. The you a paper, found at which was written nearly ten years ago, I believe, and entitled, Herodotus, Scythians, Persians in Prophecy. Herodotus relates that the Medes were already at war with the Assyrians when the Scythians invaded Media during the reign of the Median king Cyaxares which would be approximately, that reign would be approximately 625 to 585 B.C., according to Herodotus' chronology. The Scythians prevented the Medes from destroying Nineveh, and themselves became masters of Asia a position they held for 28 years. While Herodotus states that Cyaxares conquered Nineveh himself after becoming free of the Scythians, this is impossible since Nineveh was destroyed by 612 B.C. And Herodotus is likely repeating later propaganda from the Medes. Strabo tells us, rather, that in ancient times, Greater Armenia ruled the whole of Asia after it broke up the empire of the Syrians. And there Strabo is, and this was a common mistake among the ancient Greeks, there Strabo is obviously confusing Syrians with Assyrians. And Strabo mentions greater media later in the same paragraph. So he's not confusing Armenia and media Greater Armenia, according to the historian Theodorus Siculus, was the first Scythian land. Along with the witness of Herodotus, even though it's indirect, these writers show that Isaiah was correct, the Israelites, the Scythians and Cimmerians. Surely would the Medes alongside them destroyed Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire. Now there's a little doubt that the Babylonians were also in league with the Scythians and the Medes in the destruction of Assyria and Babylon at that time was ruled by the Chaldeans. The Book of Daniel for instance refers to the Babylonians as Chaldeans. However, Nebuchadnezzar did not ascend in Babylon until about 605 BC and from that time he began to assemble his own empire, which was relatively short-lived and supplanted by the Persians. Modern academics assign the Babylonians a more significant role in the destruction of Assyria than they deserve because, for one reason, because the academics have taken their information mostly from Babylonian sources. The Assyrian records are very scarce after the time of Ashurbanipal, 633 BC, and it is evident that none of his successors controlled the empire or even Assyria to the extent that he himself had. So it is very likely that the 28 years of Scythian and hegemony over Assyria attested to by Herodotus and corroborated by Strabo, began before 612 B.C. After the fall of Nineveh, the Cimmerians were the first of the Scythians to cross Anatolia and go into Europe. While the Scythians, the people who we know later as the Scythians, began to migrate in waves through and around the Caucasus Mountains and the Black and Caspian Seas. These are the children of Israel, whom Isaiah prophesied would help
0: to destroy Assyria. And the
1: connections between the Israelites and the Cimmerians and Scythians had been dug out of those same ruins in Mesopotamia. That concludes our presentation and assessment of the prophecy of Ma'am. Tomorrow night, Martin Luther. Next Friday, open lines. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. And good night.